0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I am thinking today of the word purgatory. And without getting too deep into theological definitions, the, the popular understanding of the word is a transitional place of cleansing and preparation to go on to a better place. And what made me think about it is I saw the phrase regarding a podcast which was talking about pandemic purgatory. I think we're definitely in an in-between place with COVID. It's certainly not over by a long shot, but there's some level of trying to find normalcy and not just be in total lockdown. And I think we're also in political purgatory. Right. They were out from a Trump presidency and Republican Congress and uh, worst of what that uh, represented. But we're by no means out of the woods. The fight is still going on, both with the right wing around who are trying to suppress and, you know, foster fascism in the country and also internally, even on the progressive side, a lot of debate around strategy and direction, how close or not close to be to people of color and a whole flurry of articles uh, recently about this concept of popularism, which Charlie and I were discussing is what they really mean is white popularism, right? So school of thought, the Democrats should only push policies that are popular with white people, although they leave that last part out. So we can link to some of those articles in the show notes. That debate's kind of raging in the, in the larger context as we are in this tra- transitional place, right? And so the better place we're trying to get through this political purgatory is to a bigger and stronger multiracial majority for justice in this country. And a big part of how we get there. Is by focusing on the right people and places in order to win the 2022 elections. And that's what we'll be discussing today. And so for that conversation, I'm joined by our esteemed data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega. Hi, Julie, how are you?
1: Hi, I'm great. It's good to be here with y'all. And
0: I am also joined, of course, by co host Charlene Chang. And Charlene, you and your family have uh, unfortunately experienced directly that this pandemic is not a, is not over and that your husband and daughter have actually tested positive for COVID. How are you and how are you and your family holding up?
2: Hi, Steve, we're overall doing fine and I feel super thankful for it. Thanks for asking. And um, just long story short, because I believe in the power of sharing these stories, our family had actually been really as careful as we could be since spring 2020 and a friend was moving out of the country about two weeks ago. And so we and another friend gathered at our friend's house and had a goodbye dinner. All the adults were vaccinated. And the only one who wasn't was my child because she's too young to get vaccinated now. And so we were inside having dinner with masks off. And we felt pretty confident because everybody was vaccinated that it would be okay. It wasn't something we had done. We had done that only maybe one other time over the past year, being with people that way. And the next day, the friend who hosted it, she didn't feel well, she got tested, it came back positive. And then the next day, my husband tested positive. And then a week later, my daughter did. Luckily, all their symptoms for everybody are mild thankfully they are all you know the adults are vaccinated and it made it so that they are as protected as can be but just big takeaway the the breakthrough cases are happening and for me a big takeaway too is it hit very very close to home how important it is who's in positions of leadership in this country because i very much believe that our country would be in a better place now in terms of control of covid minimizing cases if we had not had the administration we just had during the beginning of the pandemic and um you know a chunk of the the pandemic up until now so yeah that's my story
0: right and also in terms of the going all the way back to march of 2020 we did that podcast with ron brownstein right about one country but two different constellations of people regarding to this pandemic right so you have these leadership of other states which are refusing to do what we need to do to get safe and so it's allowed the pandemic to kind of rage on and if anybody's going to travel from different places then they can carry it right so when you get together with a gathering like you did it's not just who's in your immediate vicinity but we're all connected in ways that we're all vulnerable to the that's right weaknesses of others
2: absolutely So, yeah, let's pivot on that theme. I mean, it's all connected. (laughs) We're all connected and all the issues are connected. We're going to talk about that today uh, in terms of the midterms heading into 2022. But what I did want to check in with you first on Steve is, you know, we haven't done a "Don't Get Me Started" segment in a while. In fact, you know, sometimes I've noticed rec- we've got we recorded <laughs> a lot of one. episodes. Yeah, yeah so we've, <laughs> true, we've true. Gotten
0: started a lot. We just haven't recorded one.
2: There's been a number of conversations you and I've had off air where I go, "Oh man, getting started, Steve. Don't get them started." And I've had moments where I'm like, "Don't get me started." Yeah. But the the one thing I wanted to check in with you on is actually related to sports. I know you're a big sports fan. I am not, or it's just, it doesn't usually really cross my radar or I'm the last usually to know. Usually if I know about sports news, it has to do with something like racial shows, social justice, or, you know, misogyny or something, an issue I actually really care about. And I know that this is not a sports podcast, we're a political podcast, but this week there was news in pro football related to racism. And so I did want to check in and you know have you talk about that and i know that it you know it has this particular story does have relevance and lessons to the larger struggle for social change racial social justice so i want to hear from you about your thoughts on this particular situation and what we can learn from it
0: yeah, so the well the irony of the whole thing, right? Is that sports is where I kind of go to get away from the injustice and oppression. I've got like on Twitter wow. I have a list of politics writers and a list of sports writers, but then they sometimes you know the blend twain. together. Sometimes yes, the twain so.
2: does meet. <laughs> exactly.
0: So in a nutshell, John Gruden, who's the head football coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, used to be the Oakland Raiders team resigned on Monday after someone leaked many of his emails over the past decade, basically. Racist, homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic. They released the New York Times, and they first did a small release on uh, last Friday where he uh, called the head of the Pro Football Players Union that he had Michelin entire lips. Yes, a black man. Mm. So then the guy goes and does a press conference and says he doesn't have a racist blade in his body whatever that means, actually. And so then whoever's leaking this then leaks a bunch more over uh, several years, whereas like all manner of racist, homophobic, just terrible stuff. And it was so overwhelming that he had to resign. They basically fired him on Monday. And so it's been all over the news, partly because he's been a very high-profile person. He was the, one of the lead commentators on Monday Night Football, one of the dominant, you know, sports platforms in the in the country for many years. And he had this kind of, like, you know, folksy, fun image and whatnot. And he got lured back from the uh, broadcast booth by a 10-year, $100 million contract, which is completely unheard of. I think quite literally unheard of in football. that you I mean, Maybe you get a, you know, Three or four years, and then every year your job is on the line. So wow. this huge contract, and of course, goes to a white guy. So there's a lot more about that on the football side and the sports side. But there's, I think, there's two or three major things that are relevant. And there was, I was like, so many pieces to this that I actually wanted to say something about. And then I was like, listening to a podcast, they were talking about, it, I was like, oh, we have a podcast. Let me actually say something <laughs> for our podcast. I think fundamentally, and this was, I was experiencing it as a football fan in real time. I was so. Well, frankly frustrated and annoyed in 2020 and 2021 with the rhetoric and the, what i felt at the time like empty rhetoric about racial justice and so it was almost literally rhetoric just the way that a football game is the zo- the camera zooms in on a player and a player's helmet and you see the back of everybody's helmet and usually it has the brand of the who made the helmet but they've started putting little slogans there, end racism, it takes all of us, as they're like gesture towards actually responding to the racial reckoning. The, the, the football field says, end racism, it takes all of us, et cetera. So this is the gesture and the response and the rhetoric, and at the same time, which was particularly maddening, so you had all of that after the uh, George Floyd's murder, and then the next season, when positions came open to hire head coaches to put people in positions of power, seven openings occurred in a league with only 32 teams. And only one black person was hired. And that was the last person who was actually hired. And so all of these young, white, relatively inexperienced people get all these opportunities. So, well, what happens with taking all of us and ending racism, right? So... So you take all of that was maddening at the it, as it was happening, and then this comes out about like, well, here is who is like has the greatest, most powerful contract is this coach, and so it's just such a lesson around the difference between words and symbolism on the one hand, and actually action and putting people in positions of power. So that I think is one of the central lessons of this that I think a lot of us were experiencing. We even talked about some of the podcast in real time as the whole racial reckoning and George Floyd piece was having at Walmart talking about black lives matter. all so like, it's fine to say things, but what are you doing in terms of changing the power relationships? And so you have that whole piece. And then the other thing is that this does really rip away the facade around how people act when no one is watching. Well, to say nothing of like the level of um, hubris that even if you get to think in this way and be this to put it in emails, year after year after years like you're you feel so you know you're never going to be held to account and just a <laughs> like the version around this is what is driving me crazy is people are saying like well it was 10 years ago and that was a different time it's like what are you talking about it was 10 years ago Barack Obama was president it's not like it's the 50s or the 1800s <laughs> or something but you keep up people saying that it's just driving me nuts but it does show so these emails were going to the president of the now called Washington football team, then called Washington Redskins, that have had to change their name because of racism. And this is a whole thing going on about uh, racism and sexism at that organization. But it shows how they interact with one another. And it's, it kind of brings to mind the, uh, those of a certain age. I think we could probably find this skit. There was a Saturday Night Live skit when Eddie Murphy was on, on Saturday Night Live back in the day, where he dresses up in white face. And then he goes around and discovers how, when it's just white people, people act very differently. He gets on the bus, and the bus he gets ready to pay. Bus was like, "What are you doing? It's free. Just go ahead." Right. He goes to another place, and it's like the little party room, and it's just white people, and so they have this whole other reality. And so this kind of like validates that that was not actually so far off the mark. So those are just some of my takeaways around what's going on. In case you were, you know, people may be reading about it, but it really does seemed to me a very graspable human interest manifestation of what happened and needs to happen and didn't happen in terms of the post-George Floyd racial reckoning. So we're in a kind of purgatory in the sports world as well and uh, far, far from where we need to be.
2: I will take that all in. It does interest me to learn about that world the sports world and yeah just the ongoing struggles for change inside that culture and inso- inside that field as it is also needed in you know across society so yeah, they just uh, part of our society
0: yeah bomani jones is african-american sports commentator he was talking about this and he's like i'm telling all my black women lgbtq friends send your resumes to the Las Vegas Raiders because they are hiring right now.
2: Right. Yeah. Now, now's the time. All right. That's all really great context. We're going to pivot now to today's conversation about next year's midterms. So Steve, believe it or not. And I know you and I have talked about this, that we cannot believe it's you know closing in on the end of the latter part of the year. Yep. It's almost November, which means we're nearly a year out from election day, 2022. And today we're going to be talking about some of the key elections we'll be focusing on over the next several months heading into midterms and that we would like everybody else to focus on. Back in July, our staff writer, Fola Onifade, wrote a great blog piece for our Democracy in Color blog about four key Senate races we're watching. Everyone should go on our website and check out that article. Today, we're going to be providing an update on those races and we'll be lifting up some important gubernatorial races and state races coming up in battleground states that we're excited about and that we want to get the word out about. So for some general background on the national level, there are 36 states that will be holding gubernatorial elections in 2022 and 34 states will be electing U.S. Senators. Julie. Hi, Julie. Hey there. Hi. I wanted to have you kick us off. Can you frame up what Democrats will be facing next year overall?
1: Sure. So let's focus on the U.S. Senate, right, which, as folks remember, has currently a 50-50 balance of power, right? And so the Senate is of real concern and the ability to hold it or not is gonna say a lot about how the other races end up falling out in the next cycle. So as you said, there are 34 states that have Senate races up in 2022. So 20 of those seats are held by Republicans and 14 are held by Democrats. Among those Republican held seats, five of them are in play and possible seats that we could take over and four of the Democratic seats are at risk. So similarly, over in the House, you know, we are in a close balance of power as well. But the House seats are still, so many of them are in flux given redistricting and how that's going to play out in the various states and the narrow Democratic margins. So today, we're really going to just focus on a lot of these Senate races. And, you know, as we learn more about what the new district lines look like, we'll be able to say more in the coming weeks and uh, months about the House seats and how those will likely be looking.
2: Thanks, Julie. Yeah, I'd like to start us off by focusing on the key states in what Steve, uh, in his book and, and he talks on this podcast, has referred to as the South by Southwest region, And Steve, you've often described that as the new center of political gravity, as opposed to the middle of the country, which used to be regarded and and looked at as the most important region politically in this country. Steve, I know you just submitted the manuscript for your upcoming book. Yay, how we win the (laughs) Civil War. And you say that that framework, that South by Southwest region framework, shapes the 2022 landscape. How, in general, uh, if you can just share with the listeners a bit, how does that shape the 2022 landscape and what does that mean for Georgia and Arizona as two states in particular
0: right so yes brief uh celebration and 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 slight rest in terms of having submitted the manuscript and uh (laughs) uh, both thank you and curse you Charlene for the 300 edits per chapter (laughs) you're welcome uh, yes But I, I mean, it's so fascinating As we first started talking to the new press, it was like a theoretical construct about, you know, the civil war going on, et cetera, et cetera. And then people ordered and wore U.S. Civil War January 6, 2021 sweatshirts and stormed the Capitol with a Confederate flag to try to block democracy. And I'm like, oh, well, it's not so <laughs> theoretical anymore. And so that really is what's happening here is that that battle does continue to rage and you saw it. In, you've seen it on a lot of the post-2020 legislation that's happening this year with all the voter suppression measures. All this is an attempt to restrict participation of voters of color and to preserve white political power, which will soon be white minority political power, in these key places. And 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 it's the places that used to be the slaveholding states and the and the states. They used to be part of Mexico before the the us Mexican War, and the U.S. took Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. And so that fight really does play itself out now. And it's so intense in those places because there's so many people of color. And that's why there's so much suppression. Like there was somebody actually did a study when Jesse Jackson ran for president in 88, that there was an inverse relationship between the percentage of the black population and the percentage of the white vote that Jesse got. So the fewer black people that were in a place, the more white votes he would get. And it had to do with the fears and the insecurities around the white population about being overrun. And so the positive part of this is that these are the areas that will cut the legs out from the right wing and the Republicans and the Confederates. Their political power is based in Arizona, Georgia, Texas, Florida, the states of the Confederacy. And so that is the big picture of this and that's the intensity of it. And that's particularly why while this voter suppression is taking place. So that is the critical context in looking at 2022 because the fight is raging and that we need to go into 2022 as a progressive movement to back the expansion of democracy overall and then in particular, key groups and key leaders in these states who are fighting to both win elections and get into positions of power. So that's the context of 2022 and that particularly Georgia and Arizona, because those were the two states that were critical to defeating Trump and to taking control of the Senate. We won the Senate, Mark Kelly's seat, and Ossoff won in Georgia, and that's what got us to 50 And they understand that. And so the the fight to take them back in 2022 is going to be fierce. In that context, there are a few different races that are critical for us to all rally behind to get behind. In Georgia, the the Senate race, Reverend uh, Warnock, is up for re-election in the seat that he won this past January. That will be a critical piece. We need to all you know, support him, move resources towards his candidacy, lift it up and make sure it's prioritized by the whole progressive movement. Although she has not announced yet, it is likely that Stacey Abrams is going to run for governor again. She did a spreadsheet 20 years ago saying that she was going to be governor right about now. And so there is, she is very much on track towards that. And it really has been the work that she's done in the infrastructure that she connected us to Reverend Warnock five, six years ago, right? In terms of putting in place these different pieces around expanding democracies had this uh, analysis around the way to build powers to expand democracy. And she created groups like new, uh, new Georgia project run by Ense Ufa now who was guest on the pod. Um, she helped to get uh, Nakima Williams into then the state Senate and democratic party chair. And now she's in Congress. Nakima's a past guest on the pod. And so Stacey's role, obviously, has been central to this, and so get even behind her candidacy and in the infrastructure that she's built in terms of having volunteers, activists in every single county of the state to be able to maximize the voter turnout and, and participation. And then, in that context as well, there's a, a very important race as well. People should keep on their on their radar uh, for Secretary of State. And so, B Nguyen is Vietnamese state legislator. Actually, B is serving in the seat representing the district that Stacey used to have, and that she's now running for Secretary of State in Georgia. The centrality of the the Georgia Secretary of State race was very clear in December and January of this past year when Donald Trump did everything he could to try to overturn, called up the Secretary of State, tried to pressure him, I need you to find 11,000 votes. And so the importance of that position to protecting against the voter suppression that is going to be coming uh, in the future, 2024 as well. So the strategic significance of B being able to win that statewide secretary of state race is also important. And I do believe that these will all rise together. And it's going to be about, can we organize and galvanize and mobilize the new American majority of voters, multiracial, Latino, Asian, progressive whites, African-American to overcome the opposition of what, Right, we're calling in the book the confederates right and so that's the context in the landscape for georgia and that's what we're facing and the, the strategic significance of that is going to be critical we did these uh report cards in 2020 we were criticizing the, the senate super PAC for putting seven million dollars into iowa and zero into Georgia and failing to understand the strategic significance of what's happening in Georgia. So I think it would get it better now. But looking at 2022, Georgia is going to be a very critical, fundamental place to focus. And Stacey and Warnock and B. Wynn are key races um, in Georgia.
2: Okay, so let's talk about Arizona, where Democratic Senator Mark Kelly is up for re-election and there are several other important races happening there. Also, I want to plug your new piece in The Nation that just came out this Wednesday, where you talk about the mounting campaign to back a Democratic challenge against Democratic Senator Kristen Cinema in the 2024 primary when she's up for re-election. So, by the way, if uh, listeners, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll see that Nation article linked there. If not, you can go straight to The Nation's website. You can find the article there. Uh, Steve, real quickly, first of all, why primary cinema and also just tell us a little bit more about Arizona, why it's so important in general and why it's so important next year.
0: So the the it's also in the context of what has happened historically and recently. Right. So one of the things we say in the book, we opened up talking about the first governor of Arizona back in the 1800s. His previous job had been editor of a newspaper called The White Man. Right. So there's a long, long history of Arizona and white nationalism, white supremacy in a place that was actually part of Mexico. And that battle has raged literally across the centuries. Arizona was the one or the main state in the late 80s to oppose a Martin Luther King holiday. The then governor said that you people don't need a holiday, you need jobs and tie this together. right? So when the the football league boycotted going to uh, Arizona for the Super Bowl, then they Relented. And as we say, they they turned out that they uh, liked football more than their racism, at least in that context. So, but that whole battle was played itself out. And it really culminated in a lot of ways in 2010 when they had this show your papers law, SB 1070, which was really designed to crack down on immigration, allow the police to basically go up to any person of color and ask them, do they have, you know, correct documentation to be in this country? And it was a huge, movement, particularly for uh, immigrants, particularly for Latinos. And it wound up passing, but the fight against it, I mean, there was a vigil on the state legislative steps for like a hundred days. And so all of these young people, 18, 19, 20 years old, became activists and became galvanized in that struggle and then went on to lead organizations and build a civic engagement movement in that state that has transformed the state. Right. So Monse arredondo runs One Arizona. Tomas Robles and Alex Gomez runs uh, Lucha, which has been a pivotal civic engagement group within Arizona. They have done this work that has registered hundreds of thousands of people of color over the past decade, particularly Latinos, also Native Americans as well. It's one of the largest concentrations of Native Americans in the country. And it's that work that Resulted in, well, for one, the election of cinema and then the election of Biden in 2020. So, in terms of cinema, she has refused to even meet with that coalition of groups since she got elected. She started out as an activist who was opposed and a very strong ally around immigration with the immigration groups, and then has been very non supportive and obstructionist to the very movement that propelled her to power. So she needs to go on that level alone. And I break down further in the, in the piece that she has this misunderstanding around the, her white support. And so we really explain that it really was a drop in Republican white support, not that she has some like magical powers with attracting moderate whites, which she seems to believe. And that's why she carries on this way. So that's the terms of the cinema piece. But lost in terms of the 2020 election is the centrality of Arizona To blocking the coup, right? So Trump's whole plan was to really focus in on Pennsylvania, was to delay votes being counted in Pennsylvania, make people vote as much as possible by mail, and then to win the day of counting, and then to bring all this pressure to bear Republican state legislature in Pennsylvania to try to flip and stopped the counting of the absentee ballots, which were one of the ones that put Biden over the top. But the whole math of that was premised upon Pennsylvania being the pivotal flip state. So when Biden won Arizona, it took that whole underpinnings from that strategy out because the math no longer worked. And so the strategic significance of Arizona, the national politics is critical. So they're are not, and it's not any accident that they've been on the forefront of the voter suppression pieces in 2021. And so there's there's the two to three key elements of what's happening in Arizona in this context, then, right? So Mark Kelly uh, is up for his seat in the Senate. And so holding that is going to be a critical piece. Then the, the gubernatorial election is happening, right? Katie Hobbs, who's the current secretary of state, is running for governor. And so that's going to be a key piece. And there's also going to be... The state legislature. So we are one seat away in the Arizona House and in the Arizona Senate from flipping those legislatures. And those legislatures are going to be critical in terms of the 2024 election, because if they can, they will try to throw out any Democratic votes in 2024, just give them to the Republican, particularly if it's Trump. So that's a lot of what's at stake in Arizona. And it's a very, very critical and central state, but it doesn't get as much attention in terms of where it fits in the national strategic landscape, but it is critical to all that is good. We're going to be facing in the next few years.
2: Also, Steve, just wanted to point out that there's going to be a secretary of state race also in Arizona next year. So people should know that. Julie, I find the demographic data about Arizona really fascinating. And I just wanted to ask from your point of view, what do you think are some of the top line data points that people should know about Arizona if they don't already know?
1: Yeah, there are some surprising numbers, I think, that aren't sort of common wisdom for folks. The latest census numbers really look great for Democrats. Um, You know, that trend has been going on for some time now, and the 2020 numbers definitely reinforced it. So there are now over 2 million Latinos in Arizona, and that is about a third of the total population, right? So it's obviously become more and more of a critical voting block over time, and Also, most people don't realize that the Native and Indigenous communities there make up over 5% of the total population. And that's actually a larger population than the state's African and Asian American populations. And we've been seeing, you know, more and more resources going to these people of color voters over the past 10 years or so. But, you know, we definitely need to see that uh, level of investment continuing if this population is going to start to vote at the same rates that the white population has has voted at in recent years.
2: Steve, I wanted to also ask you about Texas. Right. So Texas is the other
0: key pillar of what's going on here in terms of this ongoing civil war and where we're actually fighting to transform places that used to be the pillars of the right wing and the Confederacy in this country. And what's been lost to popular understanding is the progress that's been made in the past decade by groups such as Texas Organizing Project and other progressive organizers to increase the turnout of people of color in places like Harris County, which is larger than like almost a couple dozen states in the country, and it has a majority of people of color, but it's previously been run mainly by, by white Republicans. And so Harris County and Houston have transformed over the past decade. And so now they're run largely, almost exclusively by Democrats. And that Harris County's top executive is a woman named Lena Hidalgo, who has been extremely effective and creative and innovative leader around public policies, and dealing with the pandemic, expanding democracy. And she's a very compelling Figure who has great long term potential. I think she's like 30, 31, something like that. So people are talking about her as a future gubernatorial candidate, et cetera. But she's up for re election in 2022 to her seat running the Harris County. And so that's going to be a very important strategic race to get behind as well, both in terms of her future, but also in terms of continuing the democracy expansion in Harris County, which is where there's the lion's share, one of the lion's shares of people of color votes that then improve the statewide prospects as much as we can get people out in key counties like Harris.
2: Okay. So those are the key states for us to focus on. Steve, broadly, what else should we know about
0: 2022? So we, we, we talked up front about how there's this struggle going on with the Democratic Party around strategy and direction, and that people still don't believe that the new American majority of massive mobilization of people of color with the meaningful minority of of progressive whites is the way to go about winning. That's what we did in Georgia, we've done in Arizona, but people still don't get that. They still feel like we should be trying to chase and change the minds of a lot of the more conservative white voters. But this election not only offers an opportunity to prove the theory of the case, but our best chance of winning, just as our best chance of winning in 2022 was getting behind Reverend Warnock and not the white candidate in Iowa, because the population didn't exist. We didn't have the numbers in the same uh, promising fashion have There are three races in particular in 2022 where the new American majority, along with the right and inspiring candidate, offer us the best chance to flip those seats. And so those three are in Florida. Val Demings is running for Senate against Marco Rubio and that we keep coming agonizingly close In, uh, uh, you know, Andrew Gillum lost by, you know, 30,000 votes. Rick Scott in that same year, 2018, lost the Senate seat by 10,000 votes out of like many millions who were cast. And so continued mobilization in a place like Florida will get us there. And having a compelling, strong candidate, Val Demings, African-American woman, former uh, police department chief, member of Congress now, she's running for Senate. So that's a key race where as her bio can be inspiring to bring out the kind of voters that we need along with the ongoing organizing um, by groups such as Florida New Majority. So Val Demings in Florida, that's Senate race. Also over in North Carolina, Supreme Court Justice Sherry Beasley is running. And she that's another state where we come really, really close. The demographics are trending in our favor. And there's large numbers of non-voting people of color. She ran for uh, Supreme Court in 2020, got 2.2 million votes Lost by 400 votes, but in terms of her potential and her capacity, that shows how strong she can actually be. A lot of the community groups of color are coming behind her. Jessica Byrd is one of the key strategists within the country. is a big champion and proponent of of Sherry Beasley. And again, being an African American woman will inspire and bring out the kind of turnout we actually need to win. So that's the second race, North Carolina, Sherry Beasley. And then third is in Wisconsin, where Mandela Barnes. That's the best first name in politics. Is running. He's the current lieutenant governor, a young African American man running for Senate in um, in Wisconsin. That's a seat where we won, but won by very close margin. And the upside, the greatest potential, is in young people, inspiring and mobilizing them, and in non-voting African Americans, particularly in places like Milwaukee. And so Mandela is the perfect person to galvanize and inspire and mobilize that constituency. Julie, I think you have a little bit of a data points around the potential within those states in terms of the new American majority there, right?
1: Right. Just to sort of reinforce some of those, those points you're making there in Florida, there were more people of color who didn't vote than there were people of color who did vote. There's actually half a million more. Right. And so you could easily expand outreach efforts, mobilization efforts into that people of color population and pull out a whole lot more votes, more than that 32,000 votes that, um, that we lost by in the last election. If you look at North Carolina, that one we lost by 74,000, give or take a few votes. There are over a million people of color who were eligible but didn't vote in the last midterm election, right? In uh, North Carolina, we have about as many people of color voting who are eligible as we have not voting who are eligible. So again, a lot of room to expand efforts in that population. And if you look over in Wisconsin, which we won, but just by 20,000 votes, since that election, 74,000 more young people have turned 18 in the state, right, who are just sitting there waiting to be brought into the fold, engaged and um, you know, registered and turned out to vote. So clearly there's also a lot of room to increase turnout in places like Milwaukee, right, where we have re- really high concentrations of people of color voters in the state.
2: So we're at the end of our show. But before we close out, Steve, I wanted to just quickly have you weigh in on the prevailing narrative that the party, which is currently occupying the White House in that case right now, it's the Democrats always perform worse in the midterms than the opposing party. And that in this case, Democrats therefore are on track to keep that tradition going. Wanted to get your thoughts. What do you think of that? Is it a fact? And if so, how do Democrats break this so-called midterm curse?
0: Yeah, it's not it's not. Accurate. I mean, it's like people with these data points or they will be like, going back to 1850s, we've seen such and such. Well, we were in slavery back then. So your data points are are, are are lacking right, in that regard. Jonathan K. Part did a really good piece. See if we can find the link to it and put it up. It's all about turnout. The reason that that happens is because the party in power, their supporters tend to feel Complacence, like okay, well, we got the White House, we're fine, we don't need to come out, and so the other side tends to turn out in greater numbers, and so that's the urgent warning call we have. We have to respond and rally and be engaged and turn out in large numbers. And so Jonathan did a his uh, on his t- television show on MSNBC a few weeks ago, a whole piece about this. If we turn out, we have the numbers; we can actually pick up seats. And as we talked about today, there's a, some key places where we have a very good chance of picking up seats. So by no means does this past uh, framing have to be how things play themselves out.
2: So yeah, there it is. I just want to let listeners know, I know we're a year out from next year's election day, but it's never too early to start thinking about it and getting your friends and family to just start paying attention to what's happening for next year's midterms and get out the vote.
0: All righty. So a lot happening. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Charlene. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyandcolor.com. Thank you to everyone who took our survey and shared their thoughts on the podcast in our newsletter. We've really been pouring over that feedback, really enjoyed it. If you didn't get a chance to participate and would still like to share your feedback, leave us a rating and comment on iTunes. This helps other listeners find the podcast. And as we learn from the survey results, it lifts our team spirit. This podcast is Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, we're going to make it out of this purgatory, folks. Keep the faith.